Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the Hard Way to Enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. Follow Jelly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz, in this ambitious musical masterpiece that's sure to blow the roof off the theater. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. I sure hope you had a wonderful weekend. I took it really easy. After our 10-day member drive, I needed some rest. And so that's, I did do a fair amount of reading to prep for today's program. That's that's sort of usual over the weekend. But just was so nice to be very quiet at home and to relax. And I can't thank you enough for over a million dollars that was raised. We had a million dollar goal to raise over the course of the 10 days and public radio stations across the country, just like all journalistic organizations, really finding it challenging in this economic environment. But you stepped up in a very big way. I can't thank you enough for your generous support, which enables us to continue with Air Talk. Coming up later this hour, it's just you and me, no no special guests. We're going to open up the phones and hear what neighbor in your life might have made a huge difference, particularly when you were young and growing up. Maybe you had a neighbor who really fulfilled an important role in your life. Uh, I know for my my uncle who grew up, his, his dad uh, died when my uncle was very young and that there was a guy down the street who really um, helped teach him a lot of things about how to build things, make things, um, really provided uh, very practical skills that my grandmother was not really prepared to impart to to my uncle. And he, that neighbor filled a very valuable role. And I know there are all kinds of stories like that. We want to hear those from you later this hour. A neighbor who really made a big difference in your, in your life, either as an adult or during your formative years. But we start this hour with our weekly series on Southern California history. A couple weeks ago we started, just happened to be Indigenous Peoples Day, so that's what we talked about, Native Americans of Southern California. Last week was organized labor that we talked about, and today we turn our attention to Filipino Americans of Southern California. This is Filipino American History Month, and we're going to be looking at the contribution of Filipino Americans in the Southland in many different fields and cultural contributions as well. Joining us is Joy Salas, who is assistant Professor of Asian American Studies at Cal State Los Angeles. Professor, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much. Hello. Now, you didn't grow up here. You're from Chicago, I understand. And That's correct. You came here to teach at Cal State at Cal State LA. But share with us some of, of the general um, immigration of Filipinos to the United States. How, how far back do we have records of that? So Filipinos can be called the first uh, Asians to land in what we now know as the United States. So the first recorded landing of Filipinos in, again, what we now know as the United States was in Morro Bay, California in 1587. Um, And that was actually when um, the Philippines um, was a colony of Spain. 
Um, and so, like, if people ever wonder why a lot of Filipinos have last names like Gomez, Rodriguez, De La Cruz, um, it's because we have that history of being a Spanish colony. So when Filipinos, quote unquote, landed here in California, they were actually part of a scouting crew um, to, I guess, yes, look over California land, survey it, um, make contact with the Native Americans here, um, because eventually, right, California would become um, under Spain, a colony. So um, that's why Filipinos were the first recorded Asians to quote-unquote land here in California. So that's how far back it goes, 1587, wow. way before um, like the pilgrims landed here on the East Coast. Now, did they stay when they came, or did they, they come, do their surveying, and leave? Um, they did their surveying, and then left, and then came back. So the first scouting mission didn't have a successful contact with Native Americans, and so they had to come back again. Um, but, you know, there's actually a longer history of Filipinos coming to, you know, Spanish colonial America, um, to California, to what we now know as Louisiana, to um, colonial Mexico. Um, so that, again, goes far back even before the founding of the United States. Wow. And uh, one of the things I, I didn't realize much more modern history is that in the early 20th century, there was actually a little Manila in central Los Angeles. I, now we have Filipino town, of course, which is a different location. I didn't realize that there was a significant population even then. Oh, yes. So actually, when you want to look at um, more mass migration to the U.S. Um, that's, I guess, more recent than 1587, but that's at the turn of the 20th century um, when um, the United States, after the United States colonized the Philippines and made it a territory. So to give like a brief background on that, um, 1896 was when the Philippines declared its uh, war of independence from Spain. Um, Couple, at the same time, Cuba was also gaining its independence from Spain. And then the Americans supported the Cubans, um, but then kind of co-opted the Philippines um, and Filipinos' fight for independence. So the U.S. intervened um, when Filipinos were fighting against Spain and actually bought the Philippines from Spain for $20 million um, in the Treaty of Paris, um, where there was no Filipino representation in terms of if they wanted to be, you know, sold off to a new um, colonial power. Um, and so um, at around this time um, was also a period in the U.S. of high anti-Asian um, exclusion. So a couple decades before Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned um, Chinese laborers com from coming into the United States. Um, after that, there was still a need for um, farm labor here, especially in California, because, you know, mm -hmm. California is the breadbasket of yeah. America. And so then they turned to um, Japanese farm labor, Korean farm labor, um, also Mexican farm labor. Um, but there was back then a really strong dependency on Asian farm labor. Um, and so when the Philippines came into play, it was actually quite convenient for the agricultural industry here um, because then they could pull from the Philippines a cheap labor force. And so there's um, records and sources of um, labor recruiters um, working in the farm working, or farm working industry going to the Philippines um, and specifically recruiting, recruiting those with a farm working background yeah. or a peasant background. And they would flash American dollars um, and 
American teachers um, in the Philippines, too, were sent there to build uh, public schools. And a lot of them also were in many ways labor recruiters because they told like young American, young Filipinos to go to the United States and work and find money and and, um, you know, build a better life. And so where where did those um, where did they gravitate to particular crops or particular regions or were they throughout all different types of agriculture? Yeah. So 1906, the 1930s, 100,000 Filipinos migrate from the Philippines to um, Hawaii and the continental United States and Alaska. So a lot of them first landed in Hawaii to work um, as cicadas or sugarcane workers. Which we were just talking yeah, about. Yeah, we were last just talking hour. about. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, about half of them in Hawaii then migrated to California because there was, again, similar to the labor recruitment in the Philippines, labor recruiters from California to Hawaii said, oh, there's better wages here when there actually wasn't. Um, and so um, many of them from Hawaii then migrated to the California to work in, um, to pick grapes. Um, um, lettuce, asparagus, um, those are some of the most common crops that I can think of. And also um, a lot of the uh, Filipino migrant workers working um, to pick those vegetables and fruits um, would later go on really famous strikes. <laughs> yeah. We're talking with Professor Joyce Salas, who's the assistant professor of Asian American Studies at Cal State Los Angeles, also with us from Loyola Marymount University, adjunct professor in the Asian and Asian Pacific American Studies Department, Joseph Bernardo. He's also a board member of the Filipino Workers Center and working on a book about Filipinos in the San Fernando Valley. Professor Bernardo, thank you very much. Good to have you with us. Thank you so much, Larry. Happy to be here. So let's talk about the 20th century uh, and migration of Filipinos to to Southern California. I mentioned that there was a little Manila, and we, of course, have Filipino town now. So what was was the evolution of, of the population centers for Filipinos here? So what Joy mentioned was uh, there's a lot of Filipinos migrating to the United States. Uh, many of them were male, right? Um, many of them were uh, worked in the agricultural industry, and they were they worked up and down the the West Coast, you know, in the agriculture industry. Um, about two thirds of them worked in um, those industries. Uh, about a third of them actually worked in the cities. And Los Angeles happened to be one of the magnets of many Filipinos um, to the United States, um, and. Uh, here in Los Angeles, many establishments um, and boarding houses were located in downtown, where a lot of, um, you know, immigrants, people of color, uh, migratory workers would actually uh, work and stay. And Filipinos actually developed and created a kind of small little Manila around First and Main Street, uh, kind of where the Caltrans building is now yeah, downtown yeah. Los Angeles, right? Um, and then at the same time, they built, they kind of created another one on Temple Figueroa. Uh, where the DWP building was. Um, and this was a result of really racial and class segregation. You know, they were subject to much overt discrimination at that time. Um, a lot of harassment, particularly from the LAPD, right? There's lots of instances of, you know, harassment, even like beatings, uh, you know, extrajudicial um, uh, killings, really, uh, during that time, the 20s and 30s. Um, and then after World War II, when whites were fleeing the suburbs um, as part of white flight, Filipinos uh, were able to start uh, raising families. Um, and they were able to purchase homes in present-day 
what is now present-day historic Filipino town. So that happened kind of in the 50s and 60s. Um, and at the same time, uh, downtown expansion happened. So the DWP building, uh, the expansion of the Civic Center, uh, you know, those really destroyed the old Little Manila uh, areas in downtown. And um, as you mentioned, there's, you, you find um, Filipino-Americans moving all over the Southern California area, but there's still other enclaves. I think of Eagle Rock in Northeast mm-hmm. Los Angeles as a population center for Filipino-Americans. There's a, a, a prominent Filipino-American church right on Colorado Boulevard there in, mm-hmm. in Eagle Rock. Um, and, and so I wonder, how did some of these, these places, what, what was the draw to particular communities like that? Uh, well, that was a phenomenon after the 1965 Immigration Act when more Filipinos uh, came. A lot of Filipinos actually moved to historic Filipino town. Um, and then, you know, there were a lot of Filipinos there already. And then there was a kind of a bunch of hospitals that were, you know, right there. Queen of Angels, Temple Hospital, Good Samaritan, Kaiser. Right. So there was a large concentration in central L.A. And in the 70s and 80s, uh, many Filipinos started moving to places like you said, Eagle Rock, to West Covina, to Carson, to um, uh, Cerritos, to the valley where I am, right? Uh, a lot of the draw happens to be affordable housing um, and uh, job markets. See, Filipinos, when they immigrate here, especially after 1965, um, they don't create ethnic neighborhoods in the same fashion as many Asian American mm-hmm. immigrant groups. You know, by and large, Filipinos speak English, and Joy talked about how you know, there's a long history of American colonization in the Philippines. So when Filipinos immigrate here, they speak English. And so that causes a lot of geographic dispersion because many Filipinos are able to, you know, get jobs as uh, as nurses, as accountants, as, as kind of this. Uh, um, so they're not necessarily dependent on a uh, ethnic economy to survive, um, in particular in the United States. Um, and then so a lot of them kind of just go to different places in, in, in throughout L.A. County. And there's those uh, places that I mentioned where the concentrations where they are. And it's like that in many other um, cities throughout the United States. Joseph Bernardo uh, teaches at Loyola Marymount University, adjunct professor there, a uh, member of the board of the Filipino Workers Center and working on a book about Filipinos of the San Fernando Valley. Also with us is James Zarsadias, who's associate professor of history and director of the Yunchenko Philippine Studies Program at the University of San Francisco. He's author of Resisting Change in Suburbia, Asian Immigrants and Frontier Nostalgia in L.A. Professor uh, Zarsadias, thank you very much for for being with us. Um, Just on that move out to to the suburbs over time, post-1960s, an increase of Filipino immigration. How how much uh, of that uh, interacts with the move of Filipinos into healthcare? Good to be here, uh, Larry. Yeah, much of it is just, you know, again, what Joe was mentioning earlier about kind of Filipinos, like many immigrant groups, go where the jobs are. And so a lot of hospitals, medical facilities were opening up in the suburbs. You know, let's put this in the broader context of how America was operating and functioning and changing at this time. You know, suburbs are booming across the United States, including in Sunbelt cities like Los Angeles, where people, a lot of American life now has just kind of decentralized from the city and moved away to the suburbs. Not only are jobs moving there, but of course, housing and a lot of our cultural aspects of everyday life are in the suburbs. So, you know, 
Filipino immigrants, they go where the jobs are and they they build communities around where they work. So it's not even just medical um, professions like nurses and doctors, but also engineers, uh, business people, um, people in, in, in many, many immigrants of the post-1965 immigration also being of a, a so-called professional class. So they're, they're a bit more mobile, um, upwardly mobile too, in that sense as well, and also uh, able to invest in a suburban home, uh, maybe gain entree into the suburbs uh, quicker than other communities of color. And and what about rates of intermarriage? I because I have uh, Filipino Americans in my family through intermarriage, and I just wonder um, how its rates of intermarriage compare with other immigrant groups to Southern California. Do you have a sense of it, Professor uh, Zarsidias? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a high rate of intermarriage, uh, you know, marriage with other uh, communities uh, throughout different racial groups. But, you know, I think with with the suburbs, though, I, I just to kind of go back to what Joe and Joy were mentioning earlier, it's really important to understand that for a lot of Filipino immigrants, you know, American life, particularly suburban life, had been a big part of, of how they envisioned life in the United States. And we have to think about this in the kind of bigger machinery of American popular culture that's globally exported. You know, we talk with, uh, you know, fellow Filipino immigrants and their children. They know American life through these popular TV shows and books, even music that glorified suburbia, especially Southern California, when it was seen as this kind of very rosy and happy place. And for immigrants who are moving to the United States, they wanted a slice of that. And so suburbs like North and West Covina and Walnut, Cerritos, Carson, all the other communities, even into the Inland Empire like Rancho Cucamonga, Corona, and Chino Hills, you know, it offered that piece of the American dream. And these are ideas that go back to the American colonial period that was about a half century. And so when you're learning those ideas and those ideas get passed over generations, it's, it's you know, uh, natural for a lot of Filipino families to think that suburbia is where you should be living and building your, your day-to-day life. And well, especially in the late 60s, everybody's oh, doing absolutely. it. doesn't matter what, what group you're a oh, member yeah. of. That really is, as as you were saying, that is the, the migratory pattern. We'll continue our conversation on this Monday, Southern California History Focus. We take a different slice of Southern California history each week. It's about uh, the history of Filipinos in Southern California. And we're talking with three scholars who are sharing their expertise. Right now, James Zarsadias is with us from USF. Joseph Bernardo of Loyola Marymount, and Joy Sales of Cal State Los Angeles. We'll be back in just one minute. It's Air Talk. We're looking at Filipino history in Southern California as part of our Monday series that we've launched, looking at different aspects of Southern California history. And we thought this would be appropriate given it's Filipino American History Month. Professor Joy Salas of Cal State LA is with us, Joseph Bernardo of LMU, and James Zarsadias of USF. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the prevalence of Filipinos. Um, who come into a healthcare profession, and in many cases, uh, dominated staffs at hospitals, home caregivers, high percentage of Filipinos. Joy Salas, I wonder if you can speak to that. And um, uh, one of our guests said, well, you know, that's where the jobs were. And of course, that's true. But obviously, there's an affinity for healthcare and training in healthcare. So how has that happened? 
Yeah, it's funny you mention that because my mom came to America as a nurse. So yeah, I'm part of that. Pretty common story, yeah. Yeah, I'm part of that migration story. Um, so actually, um, going back to U.S. colonization of the Philippines, it was actually the Americans that uh, created the first nursing schools in the Philippines. Um, and it wasn't done necessarily out of altruism. Um Americans, when they went to the Philippines, they had similar, um, also similar ideas about other people of color in the U.S. too. They thought that Filipinos were dirty, um, naturally more prone to disease. And so they created these nursing schools and other um, um, institutions of public health to try to teach what it means to be healthy and to have proper hygiene um, and to, um, what is, yeah, what does it mean to be a healthy individual? Very much in a westernized f- framework. So, so, but it was designed for the Philippines. Yes, it was not not to be <laughs> sending healthcare workers to the U.S. Yes, exactly. Um, but you can uh, see like first kinds of nurse migration to the United States in the 1950s with nurse exchange programs. So uh, that's when. Um, Filipinos trained in nursing at, for example, the University of the Philippines would come to the United States um, to continue their training or to get employed here. Um, That's how actually, from my hometown, a lot of Filipinos first came in the 50s was through um, those nurse exchange programs. But really, um, mass migration of nurses really does start in the 1960s, you know, earlier, like, you know, we, we talked about the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 has all these basically big reforms in immigration policy, but one of them is um, allowing a pathway to immigration through employment, especially professional employment. And so nursing and healthcare is one of those that pathways. Avenue. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I think for so many of us, we can't imagine our healthcare system without Filipinos. I mean, everything from physicians Nurses, nurse practitioners, home health care employees, exactly. um, you know, you, you name it. it. It's just that representation is throughout the industry. Is, is that a, a, a source of pride, would you say, for members of the community? Yeah, I actually wanted to mention a statistic. In California, one-fifth of the nurses are Filipino. I'm surprised it's not higher. <laughs> but I guess you have a lot of rural areas that may not have as much representation. of. In urban California, I would mm-hmm. bet it's even higher. Oh, yes. And honestly, you'll, you'll find nurses all over the United States in the most rural areas as well. Um, in terms of a source of pride, um, I would say yes. I think also it's a pathway to economic um, mobility to home ownership. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. yeah. But I also want to point out too that within the nursing industry, there's a lot of different types of nurses. So you have like the RNs that, um, but you also have the CNAs um, who um, can be more categorized as working class nurses. And then, you know, nurses too. Uh, many Filipinos, uh, especially coming in the 70s and 80s, um, worked in a lot of. Um, public hospitals, maybe um, facilities that weren't didn't receive as much funding. So um, it's pretty normal, actually, for um, Filipinos working in healthcare to have uh, work two jobs. We're talking with Professor Joyce Salas, Cal State Los Angeles, uh, Joseph Bernardo uh, of uh, Loyola Marymount University. Uh, Joe, can we talk a little bit about um, the organization of, of Filipino workers and um, rights on the job and things like that? So w- when does that really start to, to grow, whether it's in agriculture or in healthcare? Well, in agriculture, um, Filipino 
workers start organizing even like in Hawaii, for example, they were part of labor strikes in the early 20th century. Um, and then they've been part of labor strikes, you know, throughout um, kind of the history of their, um, you know, history of Filipinos in, in the agricultural sector. Uh, in the nursing industry, you know, that really happened in, in, after the 1960s. Uh, there are many Filipinos who are involved in the California Nurses Association, for example. Um, and then more recently, there's been an, a drive uh, led by uh, many organizations like the Filipino Worker Center, the Filipino Migrant Center, which are trying to organize those um, those uh, those Filipinos in industries where it's hard to organize. For example, like caregivers, mm -hmm. uh, people who live in um, kind of uh, live in caregivers or people who um, you know work in in the homes of uh, people who um, they take care of the elderly. Work for uh, small so, agencies where it can yeah, be small more agencies, difficult to yeah. organize. Yeah, exactly. And um, uh, many organizations like the Filipino Worker Center has been have been trying to organize them, and uh, they're instrumental in getting and passing the uh, the California Domestic Bill of Domestic Bill of Rights, Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. Um, and so they were part of that movement as well. Uh, and I I believe the president of uh, maybe the California Nurses Association, one of those, um, is Filipina. So uh, you know they're. they're Filipinos have been involved in, in um, workers' rights and, and labor strikes um, throughout, you know, the existence of Filipino-American history. All right. Um, as we get closer to wrapping up our, our conversation, uh, I know it's very difficult to take a culture as rich as the one that you're a part of and to distill it, but to share something very personal about what maybe is the most meaningful aspect of your culture to you when you think about being um, Filipino or Filipina American that really stands out to you? And and Professor James uh, Zarsadias, is, is there's something that you think of sort of first and foremost that really is central to Filipino culture and and what's meaning most meaningful to you? Yeah, I think for a lot of us, we'll, you know, we'll have a range of answers. But for me, I, I see a lot of Filipino-American culture centered around family and community. And I know that applies to many groups. But, you know, I think for those of us who are part of these diasporic families who are used to having connections all over the world, you know, you can be Filipino in Italy, Filipino in Australia, Filipino in the Middle East, Filipino in the United States. And wherever you find those communities and pockets of Filipinos, you feel immediately at home and and that sense of Bayanihan, as they say, is, is just kind of community spirit. So I'd say that's a huge part of um, what is meaningful of being Filipino-American. And it's why we need to celebrate Filipino-American History Month every year and all day of the year. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. Uh, thanks so much. And uh, Professor Joy Salas, what, uh, what for you is really most meaningful? I think it's our history of resistance. Um, and fighting for our rights um, and also not just for our own rights but also fighting alongside other groups too for our own collective rights and you know we talked a lot already about like labor organizing and workers rights and um, Filipinos are a huge uh, part of the labor movement in the United States maybe invisible but we've been there and we are still here and so I think that's part of my pride in being Filipino is um, our history of activism. And Professor uh, Joseph Bernardo, same question for you. You know, I think James and Joy took my answers, so it's hard to come up with <laughs> well, a Well, there got to be a lot of other, maybe another one that stands out for you. Uh, I would say... Food? Um, I don't know. <laughs> no, I would say uh, it's humor. 
I think Filipinos have a distinct. Yeah, I was going to ask, is it humor? distinct? Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, yeah. Joy's nodding. <laughs> <laughs> how would how would you define humor? it? I don't know. It's like really corny and like only Filipinos would come up with this type of like really corny. Um, I don't know how to, I don't know how to describe it, lots but like puns, puns, yeah. a lot of yeah. puns. Okay, yeah, lots yeah. of puns. But I think you know it's also it's it's it, it, it's um it's also part of what what James said in terms of family and community. It brings people together, but also like you know laughter can be a, a source of resistance as well, like Joy said. Um, where you know, when things get tough, you know, humor is has a way to heal. So, um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> uh, if I had to think of a third one outside of uh, outside of resistance and family and community, I would think of uh, humor. All right, that's that's terrific. Uh, none of you happen to mention mention faith, but I know that for many Filipinos, their religious faith is a is a huge part of their lives. Professor Salas, can you just briefly comment on that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of Filipinos are Catholic. <laughs> um, I think in the Philippines, it's uh, around 80% of the country is Catholic. And so um, Christian institutions here in the United States um, serve as a huge center of community for a lot of Filipinos. Um, and so definitely, um, I didn't necessarily grow up in the church, <laughs> uh, in the Catholic church, but um uh, I know a lot of people that have, um, and there's a lot of different kind of Christian traditions in the mm-hmm. Philippines too, that not just Catholic, but also Protestant. And um, even ones that, um, even Filipinos who are part of um, more progressive, you know, Christian organizations in the Philippines that believe in like the uh, liber- liberation theology. Um, and that's kind of what... Um, you know, a lot of people think that that would be a distinct minority. Oh yeah, that's definitely a minority. Generally, <laughs> when I think of um, uh, Filipino Christians, I think of fairly socially conservative. Is that fair to say? Um, I would say uh, I'm not a complete expert on this, but um, yeah, a lot of Filipinos who are part of the Catholic Church do believe in um, pro-life. Um, and kind of more conservative gender roles, I'd say. James, uh, you want you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I'd say, you know, politically, at least in the United States, um, you know, even though Asian Americans in general lean towards the left, uh, I think with certain issues like abortion rights, some social issues and some economic issues, Filipinos um, are more moderate or lean on the right. Uh, especially the earlier generations of the post-1965 wave where they're entering the U.S. during the Cold War and a lot of that kind of Cold War doctrines informing their worldview, right, both when they were in the Philippines and now here in the United States. So there's some there's some elements within the Filipino-American community, especially so-called baby boomers who have more conservative views on social and economic issues. I want to thank all three of you for being with us. It's been really interesting. I've learned a lot. And and part of it selfishly of doing the history sec- uh, segments each week is as I want to learn about all this stuff. And thank you for, for joining us and talking about it. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, thanks so much. Professor James Zarsadias of USF, uh, Joseph Bernardo of LMU, and Joy Salas of Cal State Los Angeles. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. And we remind you every Monday, we're going to take a look at a different slice, an important slice of Southern California history. Coming up, I want to hear from you. We have no expert guest. If there was a neighbor, 
who went was beyond just kind, but someone had a real formative influence on you. Someone either through their role modeling, through their love, someone just connected with you at a time when you really needed it. That neighbor was a major figure in your life, and you're just so thankful that you happen to live in a place where this person was your neighbor. I want to hear that story, please, at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name, neighbors who change your life when we come back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. 